welcome to Estradile Illusion. Hope everybody is doing well in self-quarantine from the coronavirus. Uh, I am surviving. I think it's uh, it's weird. It's weird going outside now. It feels like we're in like the pre The Last of Us Resident Evil kind of territory. But um, I think we'll uh, we'll uh, we as a country will make it through. And uh, we are going back today. We're going back to uh, the land of of Star Trek. And despite there being, what is it, like seven, seven, eight, if you count the animated series, uh, Star Trek series, our second Star Trek episode will be going back to Voyager. We did our Threshold episode last summer, and now we've got uh, a really exciting project that uh, I've been a part of for a few years now, and it's almost ready. It's almost ready to come out. We have the editor of Exploring Voyager, a critical essays. We have uh, Rob Lively, my editor, uh, here to talk with us about the book. And I was so excited to contribute a chapter. Rob, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, I'm a PhD candidate at Arizona State University. Um, I actually do a lot of uh, work on rhetoric there. Um, but my uh, teaching job for the last almost 20 years has been uh, community college, so... I've been teaching a lot of, uh, you know, writing classes, but also a lot of pop culture there. That's where I got um, really involved in doing um, pop culture projects. And so Voyager is just one of my interests. Uh, it's funny you mentioned uh, Arizona. I was just there last week in uh, Scottsdale, and thankfully I got, got back uh, under the wire before I think everything really started to shut down from the coronavirus. But um, I think Voyager for a lot of people is... Uh, it, it, it's a it's a tricky series to engage for uh, a lot of people. There's so many people I know who who really love it, and uh, I consider myself among them. It's a really it's a fun series. And going back, uh, seeing Seven of Nine and Picard, and briefly for about five seconds, Ichab, uh not the same actor though. Uh, it it makes you really think about uh, its place in in the the Star Trek canon. So I guess to to start us off, I wanted to ask you. Uh, why Voyager? Yeah, I've, I've always liked Voyager too, um, just because in the a lot of the Star Trek series and, and even a lot of the movies have social messaging involved. I mean, if you go back and look at like Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home, the idea of environmental catastrophe or the end of the Cold War, and like uh, you know Star Trek VI. Um, but in Voyager, you've got this weird kind of uh, crucible of the '90s, which everything was really changing. It was really dynamic socially in our country at the time. And so you have like the end of the Cold War and you have like shifting alliances and you've got the birth of strange conspiracy theories and you've got, uh, um, you know, uh, third wave feminism. You've got all these things sort of uh, going on in our country. And Voyager tried to capture that. And I don't know if they always successfully captured that, but I think it's interesting in their attempt because I think the writers, as much as the people in the country, didn't really know what to expect of, of the 90s at the time anyway. And so uh, they have really interesting episodes and interesting dynamics. Um, it's reflected a lot in the essays that people were actually interested in writing, um, a lot about like things like identity and uh, larger problems, uh, you know, uh, what's going on. And I think that, you know, with the Federation and a lot of the earlier Star Trek, there was always this sort of political element. And so when you take Voyager and put them in the, um, the Delta Quadrant, um, all of a sudden, the old alliances and the old sort of mentality of doing things can kind of get challenged. And I think that's where we were as a nation in the 90s. So it was really interesting to see how the authors responded to that kind of that kind of call for papers. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. I always um I've always been interested in kind of looking at the evolution of uh uh the sets on space operas and I I feel like when you look at like the really early uh the next generation which was 1987 and then you look at Voyager in 1995, I mean that looks like there's decades in between the two in terms of the sophistication of the the set and stuff and Voyager was sleek and not to mention uh it was the first series since the original series to air on network television, which back in the 90s used to be like a really huge big deal. Mm-hmm. And The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine aired on uh, first run syndication. So to have it with uh, UPN, which has since merged with the WB to become the CW, mm-hmm. uh, it was like such this like huge deal that we had this Star Trek back on network TV. It's something that like anybody listening now would say like, gee, who the hell cares? But um just to think of it back then is just such a interesting thing to think about. Um, yeah, uh, Star Trek has always been sort of uh, had this sort of uh, social utopian vision, and I think that making it uh, available to the masses, I think, is uh, kind of something that you know Roddenberry would have really liked. Um, and I think that uh, you know uh, having their um, you know having a show on. Um, Easy, easily to access, but also um, like socially diverse, um, ethnically diverse. Uh, I think a lot of people could see some of themselves in the in the casting and in the show, which made it you know fairly popular. Yeah, and and that was kind of a you know the, the Deep Space Nine was never afraid to really dive into racial politics or a lot of lot of social issues at the time. But you kind of flip it a little bit, and Voyager is meant to be more for the masses, more sort of accessible. And yet you're right, they definitely had a lot of the, uh, you know, it was a very, very diverse cast. You had, uh, you know, uh, Garrett Wong and uh, Roxanne Dawson and really a lot of um, characters who were there to uh, kind of bring bring the series back to a spaceship. But in another way, uh, prove that we, we are in a different time. You've got Janeway as a. Uh, female captain i know uh over the course of the series kate mulgrew fought very hard to uh uh keep uh janeway away from some of the more sappy uh romantic plot lines and have her really be sort of an uh, authoritarian figure despite one who plays a lot of uh uh nepotism as it uh pertains to the the senior staff i never really understood why all the ensigns were in there but uh that's that's a subject for a different different topic um what I really liked about the the sort of the the range of essays that you included in in, in the book was um, a lot of them touched on uh, the the feminism and not not only that but sort of the more uh, problematic aspects like Seven of Nine who is really I, I know so many uh, female Star Trek fans who Voyager's their top favorite and yet it is always kind of a, a, a touchy subject when you get on the fact that. Jerry Ryan was definitely brought on the show for one predominant reason, and that was to bring young male viewers back to the series in season four and was there really as a sex symbol. Um, yeah, that's hugely problematic, I think. And um, I know that uh, uh, even at the time, I mean, uh, Jerry Ryan and, and Kate Mulgrew had problems with that. Like you had to have like, you, you can't have women just 
being officers and and um, you know functioning on a, on a starship, you have to have someone who is sexy. And she has to wear a skin tight bodysuit for some reason. Um, yeah, it's it's hugely problematic. And I've been reading a lot of uh, um, just online posts about the card. Everyone loves the new Seven of Nine look, where she's just wearing like a kind of a baggy sweater and just a badass. I think people just prefer that a lot better for uh, Seven's character arc. But in the original series, they kind of go out of their way to make her look, you know, uh, overtly sexy. Which I, I'm not quite sure why they they needed it, other than to, of course, uh, attract a younger male demographic or something. It just seems really strange. Yeah, and. Well, I always uh, just just to touch on Picard when when I see Seven on there, she just kind of looks like she's so so tired of all of that, like uh, the the way that she uh, conducts herself. As oh, I guess a new episode will uh, have have aired when we're recording, but um, just just reengaging with the the Borg Queen and stuff. She just got this look of fatigue. She's a great actress. I mean, I really and I, I really did enjoy her. Uh, introduction to the show i liked kess but i thought that kess perhaps had some uh limiting limiting plot lines and when they brought her back in i think it was season uh maybe five maybe i'm getting it wrong yeah, episode, um I, the episode fury when she comes back as an older kess yeah i look at that and i see like where was this kess for the first three seasons like this character is vastly more interesting than the one that we were that was spending her very short life stuck in sick bay with a with a computer program. <laughs> yeah, well, if you think about the Kessa's story arc, it's, it's, it's kind of problematic from the fact that she's only two and, and you have these much older guys like, you know, Neelix is her uh, you know, original boyfriend and Tom Paris has interest in her. It's like, how do you get around this kind of weird sort of like pedophilic kind of idea of Kess because she's so young? It's just, it, it's, you know, she looks, I mean, she's, you know, kind of wayfish and dainty and, um, yeah, it just—I mean—it creates a lot of problems just with the viewership, I think. And then, as you're a writer, like, how do you how do you write that kind of scene? So, on some on some level, they kind of crippled themselves when they gave the Ocampan, um just like nine years to live. I, I think it creates all kinds of other sort of social stigmas that they perhaps didn't anticipate when they thought the character out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's probably some parallels in the way that uh, Counselor Troy on The Next Generation was written sort of in a very limiting, like really putting her in a, a box where all she can really do is, you know, mutter to Picard that she senses now, she senses something, and they didn't really uh, work with her a lot beyond that. But I guess what I like also about uh, some of Seven's later plot lines, particularly when the Borg children come, is... Uh, they they added another another dynamic to her and uh, giving her more range to work 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 around and I think when when I talk about Voyager with people I mean Deep, Deep Space Nine always has like a really really uh, special place in my heart as I think it does for a lot of uh, diehard Trekkies but the biggest biggest difference between Deep Space Nine and Voyager beyond the episodic serialization comparison is that. Voyager didn't really have uh, a deep bench at all of recurring characters. It had very few, and very few who who recurred for for very long and didn't get killed. But um, it, a lot of that really put uh, the emphasis on uh, the main characters to to carry and to grow. And with regard to Seven, her four, four seasons on the show, I mean, it's really from her her the beginning to 
the end, it's just such a such a different character and one that was really ripe. I'm glad that I'm glad that Picard uh, did that because brought her back because there's just so much so much more for that character. And I'd love to see Janeway. I mean, I'd love to see them all again, but um, that was definitely something uh, that that seven, seven did. She gets she gets a bit uh, she catches a bit of flack for the the way that she was deployed as a sex symbol, but definitely got a really really substantive arc. No, I, I totally agree that uh, her arc is really interesting. And I also like that um, the writers for Picard actually brought that forward, too, because you, you mentioned the Borg children and the idea of Seven sort of entering this, this sort of motherhood role on, on the ship, at least for, you know, several episodes until the other, you know, Borg children are reunited with their with their families and only each have remains on the ship. Um, but then in Picard, you know, when, when uh, uh, spoilers, but... Um, when, uh, you know, we see the, the death of Ichab, um, you know, she's like, you know, he was my son. And so you get that sort of you know, recurring arc even throughout. So uh, I think they've built it up pretty well. And it does give a, a different perspective on Seven's character um, rather than just being like, I need to find my humanity. Um, part of the idea of, of learning empathy or something that she didn't have as a board that parents must have, I think, was, was really valuable in sort of you know, developing the character. Yeah, I would have loved to have really seen them go a little a little deeper on uh, uh, empathy as it relates to uh, uh, one thing that's so fascinating about the Borg is they're they're all collected. It's all a hive and you feel kind of like uh, especially when when Picard had his run in with the Borg and also seven, there's a certain withdrawal, like a Stockholm syndrome kind of uh, sensation that comes from being being. Uh, that that tuned in with everybody else and i i think when it comes to um learn you have to sort of you would have to re- relearn empathy afterward because you, you 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 don't you don't have access to everybody else's inner thoughts 24 7 it's a really really weird phenomenon um yeah but you'd think that if you had um you know this idea that uh you know, it seems like the Borg think that other drones are kind of expendable. I mean, the word drone doesn't really, you know, give you anything other than sort of a mindless sort of insect kind of, you know, hive mind. Um, and so I, I think that the, um, you know, the challenge for people being you know, reintegrated, like you see it um, with Seven, um, we see it with, uh, obviously with Picard after, you know, being Locutus, is the idea of trying to find themselves again. Um, there's that episode right after he's Locutus where he goes home and has a really good conversation with his brother talking about everything they've taken away from him. Um, but also in, uh, in Seven's case, we get to see the slow process of her regaining her humanity over, over several seasons, which is, which is really nice um, because, you, you know, it allows the reader to think about what, um, you know, what's lost if you do give up something like that. Um, but also, uh, you know, in the board case, you know, uh, Plato said that, you know, nobody willingly does evil. So for the Borg, I mean, they think they're creating perfection. And so for them, they're actually doing people a favor by assimilating them in a weird way. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a really common thing that people are doing kind of bad things or like will always picture themselves as a hero in their own myth. And so, um, you know, trying to overcome that as well is this idea of perfection and, um, you know, developing um, this, this, you know, this the, the hive is more important than the individual. And with seven, we get to see that you know maybe the individual has some some merit as well. 
and it's been reinforced throughout, you know, sort of uh, Star Trek canon anyway, with the uh, episodes about, you know, is data human or, you know, the idea of Spock being multiracial. Um, and so it's, it's really kind of, kind of interesting. And it's an overall plot point for the, for the series anyway. I think that the the concept you just mentioned about the Borg you know, seeking perfection, it, it exists in such a perfect contrast to the notion of the, the prime directive, which is something that I don't have the hard data in front of me. But I, I if I had to take a stab, I'd say Voyager deals with the prime directive more than the other series, maybe even more than the, the other ones combined. And this idea that even though the Federation is super advanced and they've got all this great technology if they see a civilization that's beyond them, they're not supposed to instill their version of perfection onto them. And then there's also the temporal prime directive, which Voyager also touched at. You know, if you can time travel, you're not supposed to travel back in time and, and fix this stuff. You should uh, let, let nature take its course, which is obviously not what the board is like. Yeah, the, uh, uh, the prime directive, and I'm not sure if... Uh you know, I don't know if it's uh, more on Voyager than others, although it makes sense because they're dealing with new cultures for the first time across the Delta Quadrant. I mean, every season or so, you've got to get new cultures as you move through a different region of, of space back towards the Alpha Quadrant. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I guess the problem is um, for the viewers, um, we're seeing this as just, you know, the casual viewer or, or even like the diehard fan is uh, somehow that instilling our values and other alien cultures is a good thing, um, which, of course, is at the heart of colonialism, which is the worst thing that the prime directive is, is trying to avoid. And yet on some level, I don't think we can avoid it because, you know, as viewers and, and as, you know, living and developing the show in a Western context, we have a tendency to instill those values as being good. Um, even though Roddenberry was totally trying to be, uh, you know, sort of this utopian vision of the future, um, I, I think all Star Treks sort of fail in this respect is that they always come back to the idea of sort of, um, you know, uh, Western values as being the ideal. And it, sometimes it, it crosses that line. You see as, you know, um, you know, Captain Kirk broke it, Picard broke it, Janeway on occasion broke it. I mean, everyone does this because ultimately they're, they're still defining it in terms of the values of the writers and the audience who are actually seeing it. Right. And then there's also just the, the fact that, you know, to a certain extent, you can't really have this, you can't have a five-year mission where you're supposed to, you know, go out and explore new planets if you're not, you know, you, you do have to kind of pick and choose uh, how to how to break the prime directive. It's like even even the more civilized uh, races uh, species still have, you know, t they, they're not gonna they're not gonna line up evenly with your technology in pretty much any any sort of circumstance. So I mean, it's 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 fascinating to to think about how. They've got this sort of rule that always kind of exists at the heart of... I mean, the Prime Directive is essentially like uh, Batman's core ethos of do not kill. Everything kind of exists in relation to that, at least a lot of the episodes for Voyager. <laughs> you know, this idea of, okay, we're, we're stranded out here. We're going to try to have the values of the Federation. We're going to try to listen to them, but uh, we also have to survive. And I think one of my all-time favorite episodes, Year of Hell, the two-parter, kind of explores, it really takes the show to lengths that 
uh, we really hadn't seen before. Because we don't we don't really see Voyager doesn't suffer all that much. Like over the course of the episodes, they're constantly fooling around in the in the holodeck. There never seem to be out of food. Never seem to be out of shuttles. The twenty nine or so proton torpedoes that they had at the beginning of the series never run out of those. And yet. They, they with a, a few times they really do uh take take the the premise to its limits and I think that tends to be where it shines best. Voyager does have a lot of one-offs and two-parters that I think are some of the best of the franchise. Um yeah, um we start talking about some of the the um the lacking of when they first get to the Delta Quadrant, they have a limited amount of torpedoes. Um, their ship's kind of messed up. They don't have any allies. Um, you know, uh, Ronald Moore, who uh, eventually went on to do Battlestar Galactica, I mean, he wanted it to be more scarcity in the series. Yep. But, yeah. um, you know, the, the problem with the, a lot of the Star Trek technology is that they do have things that they can, you know, when you have replicators, if, if you have enough energy to run those things, you can pretty much, uh, you don't need, you know, a whole lot of extra food or you don't need a lot of extra things because you can just create them on the go. Um, which is kind of great. And we're kind of getting that way in our technology anyway, with like 3d printing, um, you know, just recently in this, this COVID-19 outbreak, um, you know, uh, people are using 3d printers to create parts for like ventilators and things like that for people who are sick. So, I mean, it, it is kind of amazing that you can actually create things on the spot that will fulfill a need. Um, the, the problem is, is then things are easily overcome, and then you have to create bigger and bigger challenges, right? Um, and so you get, like, some really good two-parters. Uh, you mentioned Year of Hell, which is really good because, um, you know, uh, you know Anorax and, and the, the Krenum are trying to destroy uh, different timelines to restore his wife, um, and he uh, he keeps changing things, and you can never get that back because the one problem he doesn't see is the one variable he's not taking into account is his own ship. You know, so it's the, the outward looking; it's not inward introspection. And um, you know, so so Voyager, as soon as they uh, get their um, temporal shielding, it creates another variable that he's trying to counteract, which you know keeps their ship looking really bad. And I guess the problem with that entire two part episode is there's. Um, because at the end, when they destroy the time ship, um, everything's reset back to normal. There's been ultimately nothing dangerous about that entire two episode arc. Um, uh, you know, originally the writers were discussing uh, making that an entire season, just doing Year of Hell, taking it uh, all the way through, you know, the entire season of Voyager, which might have been really interesting to conceptualize. Um, and I'd love to see if, like, somewhere the writers had kept notes on that because it'd really be fascinating to read, like, in the show Bible somewhere, they had like everything kind of plotted out. It might've been really interesting to take a look at, but, um, you know, the, the problem with those kind of things is then they create sort of, uh, you know, false dangers for viewers because at the end Voyager's completely unarmed and everyone's okay. So there's, there's some good stuff with that, but there's also some, some negativity with that kind of as well. And people have, have kind of objected to that. I've seen people post about the, the lack of danger, um, compared when you see things like in Battlestar Galactica, where everybody has shortage of food, political intrigue, the pilots are all totally tired, you know, and the ships are falling apart, and they're trying to cobble together parts. And so you can see what Moore had in mind for Voyager when you see some of the some of the uh, scarcity issues when you, uh, when you watch like Battlestar Galactica. 
Yeah, and also um, I think Moore had talked about the the one one of the the key elements of Voyager's premise was the ship was is half Maquis, half Starfleet, and yet that's kind of a factor that almost never comes into play. It comes into play a couple times, but you kind of look at that and you're like, okay, here's because Gene Roddenberry's original like rule was the Federation for some reason, despite presumably living his entire life around humans. Um, he thought that Feder the Federation that Starfleet would exist in a post conflict world. So they weren't allowed to argue with each other. And I, I don't really understand why, why he thought that, but um, deep space nine had to have a lot of creative workarounds with that, with um, sort of blending Bajor and, uh, and, and Starfleet to, to allow them to, to, to fight. And I, they, they seem to, they've kind of done away with that later, but um, it, it is kind of interesting to think about what Voyager could have become if it had sort of followed more of like, if Year of Hell had been an entire season or if we'd had more serialization, even with regard to sort of the, the core premise, but obviously with launching a new network, weekly stuff, uh, they they wanted to, have a, a show where each episode had a conflict that was neatly introduced in the beginning and then kind of more wrapped up at the end. And Voyager did it did have a couple good sort of mini serialized arcs that I thought were really strong and I would have liked to have seen more of, especially in the second season, which uh, uh, kind of kind of hinted at that for a little while. It, yeah, the Roddenberry rule in some ways, if you're a writer, um, it, it kind of kills a lot of characterization because then you're like worried about conflict. So the conflict always has to be outside of the ship. With you know, it's okay to argue with aliens, but not with each other. Um, and so it takes away a lot of uh, interpersonal dynamics. Um, and a lot of times, uh, on pretty much all the Star Trek series, when they do have interpersonal conflicts, it's always like an alien virus has taken over, or they're on the holodeck, um, or, or something like that, where um, something else is going into play to make these characters act. You know, uh, you know, uh, sort of, I don't know, bellicose to each other or something. Um, but yeah, so you know, the rhetoric and everything has to be, there's no argumentation, which, uh, this kind of, kind of uh, bugs me on some level because you, you have a group of rebels and then you get, um, you know, the, the Starfleet people and, and then, um, uh, you know, you get just a few, um, few episodes where, I don't know, by the end of the first season, basically, all the Maquis have fallen in line. Um, and uh, you, then you get some other things later on with, like, uh, the story arc with Seska was fun. Um, I, I really think Martha, Hack, uh, Martha Hackett did a great job as, as playing Seska. Um, she was a big fun villain to play. Um, but then later on, um, the, the, there's an episode where um, she had uh, Tuvok had created a training video and she actually went in there and rewrote it. But once again, there's there's conflict about the Maquis and Starfleet, but it's safe. It's on the it's on the holodeck. And at the end of the episode, everyone's still good with it. There's no kind of reserved animosity. Um, I think maybe the closest thing they came to some open uh, revolt on the on the ship um, was in uh, the Voyager conspiracy episode, where Seven of Nine is taking in so much data that she has these weird conspiracy theories about the Maquis taking over Starfleet invading the Delta Quadrant. But um, most of the time, um, all the danger of interpersonal play is done by like 
some kind of alien mind control, um, alien viruses, uh, holodeck stuff. And so once again, it's, it's pretty safe. The characters will like each other at the end of the episode, no problems to carry forward on, on other episodes. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen uh, Lon Suter's character, uh, well, Brad Dorff, who played Lon Suter, uh, kept around. He got a nice, nice heroic death, but to have this guy who's just like he's, you know, he's kind of lost it out there, and, and to some extent, he he's kind of sympathetic in some ways. He's a murderer, but um, he, he, I, I I could imagine that cabin fever would be way more of a big deal out there than anybody gave it credit for. I mean, maybe some of them were used to it five-year missions in deep space weren't that different from what they were in the Delta Quadrant, except for the fact that they, nobody really had any idea if they were going to get home. And when I was doing my first watch of Voyager and we got to that part, I'm like, okay, this is this series is finally investing in characters outside the main cast. And then lo and behold, uh, the episode where he died, I think you had uh, Seska also died and, also, Balana's uh, friend Hogan in the her her one person to talk to in engineering also got killed in that. I'm like, okay, well, that was the season three opener, and I was like, okay, well, that's the that's the end of that. <laughs> yeah, it seems like they you know uh, hired you know they hired someone for a certain amount of episodes, and then at the end they're like obligatory to kill them off or something. It's just it's kind of sad, um, but yeah, uh, you know, um, Lon Suter was a, a great character, really interesting to explore. Um, and they did briefly with, uh, with a Tuvok story arc with him. Um, but yeah, it, it, they, they could have done so much more with some of these minor characters. And a, a, another thing I think is pretty funny about the, the whole uh, Voyager uh, cast, because you get these minor characters uh, like Hogan, like uh, Suter. Um, you've only got like 142 people on this ship, right? And there's a couple aliens that yeah, you picked up yeah. along the way. You would know everybody's name. But like later on in the series, you're in like season three, four, five. Um, there'll be an alien attack, and you're like two, two, two ensign or two crewmen died. It's like you have known that guy. You just seen him every day for like four years. Um, it's just really funny how they um, sort of like just keep that anonymity of minor characters because it's a really small ship. I mean, every semester I have almost that many students, and by the end of the semester, I know all their names in like four months. Um, but if you were living with these people in close knit quarters for years, I mean, you would know everybody pretty, you know, pretty intimately on some level because you'd have done uh, missions and, and projects and everything. There's, I mean, resources would have to be pooled. And, and two vox, I was like, yeah, there's three deaths, and like no one ever says like, my God, who was it? You know, is it my like I don't know, Parisi Square partner or you know whatever they're they're doing together? Um, yeah, it just it just always kind of just amazed me that it just sort of write these characters off for no apparent reason. Um, and that, that there's nobody. And then um, in one episode, they have Ensign uh, Jatel, and um, she dies, and the doctor uh, chooses Harry Kim to, to uh, you know, save instead of her. And then he has a total meltdown. Right. And, um, you know, yeah. she, she's a person that everybody loved. It's the only episode we ever see her in. And, and I think there probably be a lot more of that going on with all the other people that die. But for some reason, this is the one that really, that really stuck out. So they, they did try to address it, I think on some level, but I, I think it kind of falls flat in the overall, overall thing just because it's, it's really, really short. Um, yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. Yeah. And they did their own version of lower decks later on in the series, which was kind of half sort of a way to address that. And then sort of half, um, 
you know, just kind of kind of a spin on the the next generation episode. I'm glad you mentioned the doctor, though, because my my contribution to the book, my chapter was on uh, the humanity of technology. And I, I really I love most of the doctor centric episodes. I think that he's of all of the kind of if you put him in like a category with data, Spock uh, to Paul and I guess kind of sort of Odo. The, in the characters who spend a lot of their time sort of thinking about their own humanity and their relation to humanity. Yeah. The doctor was really, uh, he always fascinated me in relation to, uh, data in particular, because data, data experienced that, that kind of drive. But at the end of the day, data was an individual, you know, he has his brother, lore who has emotions. Lore isn't really even a carbon copy of him, even though they're both played by Brent Spiner. Mm-hmm. The Doctor, you have a guy who's basically like Voyager Siri. Like every other ship would have a Voyager. They use that for a cameo in First Contact. Hopefully they'll do that again. Maybe in Picard we can have a EMH uh, 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 cameo. Deep Space Nine also did it. But you have the Doctor as this guy who is totally... It would be like if you uh, had like a slightly more uh, adept... Siri, who you had to, you, you got into some situation where you were alone, and that was your friend. Like it, you would kind of imagine that it was building on, uh, like, like slowly building up its own humanity, and it was, but it was totally not supposed to. And especially early on, before the mobile admitter, that was always hammered home. Like the idea that this guy shouldn't be on too much; it's going to blow his. That, that was a, a plot line. The fact that he was just storing way too much memory and. He's just is such so, so a beautiful character. I really, I love, I love pretty much every Doctor scene. Yeah, uh, the Doctor is my wife's favorite character on Voyager. Uh, she just loves everything about that uh, Robert Picardo. Um, and yeah, this is the Doctor. He um, one of the things that I, I thought was really interesting is um, Data was approached as being a unique uh, synthetic organism. And so this idea of individuality and humanity was really played out on uh, Next Generation is because, you know, data was so unique that, um, that they would play up that everybody is kind of unique in certain ways. And, and I thought that was a really interesting way to approach it. And, and credit to the people who wrote in the Doctor's character on Voyager. Um, he is something, and he's a carbon copy. I mean, every, you, you know, you see episodes where um, there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds, uh, if not thousands of EMH Mark Ones out there. And so how do you claim to be an individual or human or have individuality without, you know, w- with your shape and form and everything being everywhere? It'd be like being, I don't know, um, an identical, you know, pentalian sort of people or what something, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting how they did that. And so... To do that, you know, to make him human, um, he had to explore, uh, you know, interesting things for him. So you see him uh, doing things that are, that are kind of human to establish him as um, almost like an annoying neighbor or something where he invites you over and shows you all his pictures or something like that. So, I mean, they, they try to make him human in, in other ways. Um, you know, his, um, his interest in singing, for instance, um, you, you get... Uh, yep. You know, episodes like, uh, you know, Virtuoso, where um, he finds out that he's sort of popular. And, of course, that goes to his head like anyone, you know, if they were famous or, you know, people were you know, telling him they're great all the time. You would go to your head. You would just do that. It's, it's a very common thing. 
and then he, you know, he has to come back and admit that, you know, maybe he was overstepping and, you know, it was a really nice episode. Um, but the doctor has to find other ways to connect to humanity because he's a template of just, you know, uh, of Lewis Zimmerman, the guy who, who wrote the program in the first place. So, um, it, it's, it's kind of interesting. And we get the episode, um, author, author, where he actually creates a, oh, yeah. you know, a holographic novel. Um, and then, uh, does he have any rights as an artist because he's a hologram and people take advantage of that because according to the Federation, you know, holograms don't have rights. And so, you know, how do you determine that he actually has the, the artistic, uh, copyright on that work? Um, and so, you know, people, people point out, um, they try showing that he has all these human emotions and does these human things, but in the end, they actually convince the judge in that, uh, that he is actually human or at least, you know, as an individual by showing all his faults, the things he does wrong. And somehow that uh, makes us more human, but it is a nice moment in the, in the series, I think. Yeah, and I, I think so. Author, author, kind of has uh, a lot of parallels to the Measure of a Man, which yeah. uh, the Next Generation episode, which uh, now for for Picard viewers now has so much more uh, oomph to it because now Bruce Maddox. If I if I hear the name Bruce Maddox on Picard again, like I, I keep thinking of like they're not using the same actor. I was like. This is this is the problem with the next generation. They have no recurring characters either. They have to bring that guy back. But <laughs> funny. But as it relates to author, author, I always thought it was that that's one that I probably mention in casual conversation more than any other Voyager episode because if you think about that dilemma, we uh, in, in the in the year 2020 aren't far off from a situation like in in Japan. There was I wrote about it in my chapter. There was a case of a computer program that that was entering a fiction contest but the one that really fascinates me is so mark zuckerberg has morgan freeman as his own human as his own uh as the voice of his his own personal home ai program yeah um if we reach a point where oh go ahead oh no, i was just gonna say i love morgan freeman's voice if i could have him as my personal siri i'd totally do it but so so if like so Siri is obviously not the doctor, not 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 as not as complex by any means, but it's it's definitely a major step forward uh, that we're at that, that does kind of mirror Voyager. Suppose that Morgan Freeman AI decides that it wants to do original voice work or like if it wants to start its own podcast or something Um, and the real Morgan Freeman is like looking at it like, what the hell? You know, this is this is my voice. And it's kind of like a situation where, well, maybe it's not your voice anymore. It's kind of like uh, I was thinking b before we started recording, uh, I, I read an interview that, that Jet Li was was approached to do the uh, two Matrix sequels. He was originally supposed to be Seraph and he didn't want to do it because part of his contract, uh, Warner Warner Brothers wanted to uh, have him come in and database hit all of his fight moves fight moves that he considers basically his own sort of artistic portfolio that he's worked on over the course of his career. And he's like, well, if I sign this contract, I'm giving you all of my stuff and that you can have CGI people recreate this stuff for the end of time. No, I'm not doing it. So with the doctor, I, I always think about, yes, he's creating his own, he's creating his own novels. Yes. He's an individual in, in the sense that author, author lays out, 
And yet, like you think about those sorts of the if you think about it, if you take the ramifications from author author and apply them to our own situation, I mean that's kind of scary to think about as an artist. Um, yeah, because we don't have um, we never get uh, like Lewis Zimmerman's uh, perspective on the, the hollow novel the Doctor creates, even though he's using his his body, his looks. Um, you know what? How much do you own copyright to your own image, your own voice? Um, yeah, that's going to be kind of interesting, but they have like a lot of programs now where they, uh, they CGI in people who aren't there. Um, you know, in, in yes. star Wars, they did, uh, Peter Cushing, um, even though he's been dead for a while and they, they've, uh, you know, put in, uh, you know, Carrie Fisher. Um, so these things are probably on the horizon a lot quicker than we'd like to think. Um, which is kind of strange. And eventually maybe what happens if uh, an AI starts creating movies with people that they've made up out of other AI stuff, conglomerations of people. And, you know, it's just, how is that going to work for people who are having body parts taken? What happens if you have a particularly attractive set of lips or an ear or something that end up on a character? Do you have rights to your own body parts? I, I, I don't know. Uh, the, the, the future is going to be really strange. with a lot of copyright, um, copyright law i think based on um what is being used and how they're going about it who owns i mean does the does the ai in in japan does the um does the ai actually get the right copyrights for the story or does the programmer yeah and uh there was a controversy a couple of months ago there's going to be a cgi james dean kind of done in the similar vein of uh peter cushing and with rogue one like Lucasfilm stressed, like, hey, we got the blessing of the Cushing estate. But as this becomes more common, we're going to we are going to encounter situations where people are like, no, you're not allowed to do this. And then probably legally, they're still able to do it anyway. So that's definitely something that's that's interesting to think about. And what I also thought was interesting about the doctor uh, with regard to his place on Voyager was there are a couple times over the course of the series, probably not really all that many, but there were uh, a few instances where the characters really did dive into, is this guy human or not? Mm-hmm. And it always kind of ended with like sort of a, a sort of a soft, well, we don't know, but for all intents and purposes, uh, we might as well continue to treat him this way. There were two arg- uh, arguments that Janeway had first early on with Kess and then later on with Seven where they were arguing over it. And it, it's just, you know, it's one of those things where you, you'd almost really want or, or to go back and look at the writers and say, okay, we kind of ended this in a gray area of whether he's human or not. What happens if you really do have to like lay down the law and decide yes or no, what happens then? Um, yeah, um, actually that might I should probably ask you a question um, just based on your chapter. Uh, you know, what would you like to share about that? Cause I think you do some really interesting work in your, in your chapter talking about the doctor's humanity. Yeah. I, I think he's just this. Um, we talked about empathy earlier. I think as we, um, cause it's, it's weird. I think there's even like a specific term. For, well, there's a specific term for love of robots. Uh, but um, the idea that we may have to be empathetic to uh, ro- robots or AI or all of that is this this question that maybe uh, makes us think more about our own humanity than 
than his. I mean, I always I, I see so many parallels between uh, the doctor's fight for uh, his own humanity and broader LGBTQ issues <laughs> because, um, you know, there were things that even like back in the 90s, not the Voyager, not that Star Trek has been known for um, homophobia, although they tend not to uh, address gay characters at all. But there were things that society could say 30 years ago that are now uh, far less acceptable and people like it's this big challenge of how do I make somebody care who doesn't have to care? Like, how do you get somebody to care about other people? And that's kind of like at the core of the doctor, that's constantly a challenge that the, the, the crew is being asked Uh, even in virtuoso where he wants to leave the ship and Janeway's like, well, do I let him leave? Like, is it not fair to not let him leave? Um, he's, he's this, he's really a, a, a great vessel through which to, to explore the ways that, that humanity, uh, interacts with, um, marginalized groups and, uh, you know, really getting into the question of, uh, you know, why should human beings care about other human beings? It's something that, uh, those of us who consider us good people don't really need to ask ourselves, but there's so many people more out there that, that really, uh, should spend some time with that question. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the idea that the doctor uh, sort of you know, represents on a, on a broad scale, um, you know, marginalized groups of, of you know, um, all, all types, um, you know, people have to figure out like, okay, you know, how do we, how do we, you know, in- interact and, and um, you know, show that there's, there's this humanity there um, and, and, you know, why people do need to actually care because a lot of times I, I think, uh, especially with like the doctor, um, you know, he's, he's easily dismissed by a lot of characters on the, uh, you know, on Voyager, especially in the, the first um, season, maybe season and a half, um, and, until he sort of establishes his ground as, as a character and becomes more involved in the, in the crew. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, the, the doctor um, ends up, you know, kind of showing, um, all, all the basic reasons of human decency of why we need to treat people with respect. And, and I think that, you know, he, he does, a, um, you know, his, his character arc does a nice job with that because he goes from being this really marginalized character um, in, in the first, you know, season for sure um, to being, you know, one of the, you know, one of the major players in, in the last few seasons. Yeah. And also something that really um, always fascinated me about the doctor was, uh, the ways that he grew sort of naturally over the course of the series that also exist in contrast to uh, singular episodes where that was kind of his ob- objective, like, like Darkling where he's taking on uh, the personalities of Socrates and Gandhi and Lord Byron. And uh, it doesn't work. And I think like, you know, the self-help industry, for example, is like this, you know, so many, so many books get sold, um, on, you know, promising like quick fixes on how to change yourself and all of that. And, you know, for some people that obviously works, that's all great. I'm not knocking uh, the entire genre, but um, growth is like this thing that, that needs to, needs to take place over the course of time. And also I think at the same time, um, as it relates, um, you know, going back to LGBTQ issues a bit, um, some, something that, I deal with a lot with people who come to me for uh, help or advice. Uh, 
you know, they're talking about their older family members, like people that we think like, you know, the get off my lawn, Gran Torino types. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that, yeah, I, I, I think that we, I always say like, you know, people, people can surprise you a lot more than, than you think. And I think when you give people a chance to grow, uh, oftentimes they take it. Now, oftentimes they don't take it, but kind of the, the, the story of the doctor, um, you know, they could have, they could have in the early seasons when, you know, they're shutting him off rudely. He doesn't even have agency over whether he can shut himself off. And, uh, you know, over time, over time, they, they, they shed that and they start to grow. And I think that, um, somebody watching, like if you just showed somebody like a random season one episode and then a season seven episode with him, they'd be like, this is a totally different character. And maybe it is, but also in, in some ways it's not. It's the guy who was not only grew, but was allowed to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems that um, uh, the, the doctor does show a nice story arc. And, and if you want to think about maybe him growing up over the course of the show, uh, I always thought of Darkling as sort of his teenage years, you know, where he like, I don't know, starts listening to like a certain music or something and uh, adopts those features. So like, you know, He's he's going through. He's got all these like you know he's Lord Byron and Gandhi and you know and all these all these different um, aspects of personality he takes on. I think he's trying out um, you know personality types, I, and I think a lot of teenagers do that. I, I know my kids when they were younger they did that. Um, they would you know hang out, they would grow their hair long or cut it short or you know put on black eyeliner to shock me or something. Um, and it was always just kind of funny because they were just trying out to see what worked for them and who they were as people. And I kind of get that sense that, you know, and this, this is obviously the much more tragic ends um, with, with the doctor, but, it, um, you know, I, I think he was actually trying to, to grow as a person. You almost get that whole, you know, sequence of, of episodes where he's, uh, you know, he's basically trying out his personalities and, and trying to you know, figure out who he is. And then when he grows more into his, uh, his person, he's more comfortable with who he is. Uh, then you see a lot more character development uh, of the doctor, uh, you know, in his interest in music um, and, and his interest in, um, you know, uh, photography and, and other other artistic endeavors that just, just don't, you know, find him as a doctor. He actually has interest in these kinds of things, um, but he has to kind of grow into those. And I think uh, Darkling that you pointed out is a really good sort of like transitionary one where he's just exploring, you know, what it, what it means and, who he is as a person. Yeah, real life is another one where he gets his family that only lasts for a single episode, uh, <laughs> which I think they probably could have uh, stretched that out a little longer. But um, I guess the tragedy of real life is also that he gets his family, he loses them, and they 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 just kind of exist as a way to show him. Um, you know, human emotion that he was probably uh, never going to be. Well, I guess late in image, he also has to deal with uh, loss. But in, in real life, he you just get this entire family that served to uh, explore a facet of, of the doctor's personality that, that the show could not really otherwise tackle. It's uh, that's that's definitely a fun one. It, it's kind of like a precursor to the, the video game, The Sims, in a in a weird way. Yeah, um, it's, it's always kind of funny. I always thought that, uh, you know, um, people on, on, you know, if you're on Voyager, um, 
it seems to me would mention a lot of these things more often. Like the doctor, I don't think ever mentions his family again. Uh, maybe he does once or something, but I can't think of it right offhand. But um, it, it's just you know. Yeah, you, pretty pretty sure he doesn't. Yeah, it, it seems like he would he would mention these these really traumatic times again. It's just like oh, I lost you know my family or you know I have his family or something. It's just they're there. They serve a, like a lesson purpose for the episode so we can see it. And then they're sort of jettisoned, uh, you know, just to the, the, the backkeep of the show. Um, but it's, it's really interesting that a lot of these things occur. And, um, then we don't, we don't see these, these things happening or mentioned ever again, which is kind of, kind of baffling sometimes just because of the nature of, of a, a small ship like that, it would be, everyone would know this. I mean, almost everyone through, just chatting or gossip or whatever and it's just we never see it at all yeah that you know the the lack of um stronger recurring bench uh one of one of my all-time favorite doctor episodes also one of my all-time favorite seven episodes i'm gonna watch over me when the doctor is uh playing match playing matchmaker a job that he's probably least suited for on the whole show maybe i don't know tuvok may be a worse matchmaker than he is but um (laughs) And they have to go to these, you've got these random, random lieutenants that uh, he's pairing her with. And it turns into the, the kind of sitcom trope of the bet that is inevitably, the bet between uh, the doctor and Paris that is inevitably going to uh, piss Seven off. But it's, it's such a, it's such a weird, it's such a weird concept to like explore. Cause they're, they're, the Seven and the doctor are, are probably, the two most similar characters on the show to each other. Cause they've both kind of got that, uh, uh, connection to the technology and they both, they, they work, they work really, really, really well together. And it's just fascinating. I would have personally, the show ended with a seven and Chicote romance that I don't think anybody in the whole world wanted. <laughs> I think maybe it would have uh, been better to pair her with the doctor. Although he, <laughs> yeah. he also in the future has, uh, he does get married in his older form. That's right. And they do the flash forward. Yeah, the, the end game. Yeah, um, yeah. It seems like yeah, the Doctor and, and Seven seem really suited because they're struggling with a lot of the same things. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know why they didn't pursue that more. Um, but you you do get a, that. Um, you know, you do get the whole uh, group of, of ensigns who. Um, show up for like an episode and then they're gone. You never see him again. I guess the only person you really see a lot is, uh, um, Ensign Ayala who's sort of in the background in lots of episodes, yeah. like the extra. I mean, like what a great gig if you can get it, just sort of stand around on, on Voyager. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he's in a lot of episodes. Um, yeah. And actually, uh, the King of Jordan actually appears on a couple of episodes as well. Oh, He'll show up. He'll show up and hand a pad to like Jane Wayne walk away. He's a huge Voyager fan. <laughs> yeah, they got a lot of great guest stars like Sarah Silverman, Jason Alexander, uh, Seth, yeah. Seth MacFarlane also uh, appeared on it uh, kind of before people knew who he was. But uh, yeah. the show definitely did have a lot of uh, a lot of great one offs. Uh, and it was. You know, I whenever people want to talk to me about Ayala, I'm like, you know, if you can tell me f- more than like three or four sentences about him your 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 goal but yeah he was that was a great gig he got uh got a got a got a lot to do with that i never really so paris has to be the nurse for the doctor in the later seasons i always wondered like gee there's like 180 people on this ship you can't like 
you have to have the guy responsible for flying the ship to also be the nurse. Like, is there, is there no one else? But yeah, and he supposedly only took like one class in like what biochemistry or something to get him to be a nurse. I mean, someone's yeah. probably taken like a biology course somewhere. Yeah, it, it is kind of funny. It's just like, you know, I, I guess it's a way to keep the cast small ish or something without recurring characters. Because um, even if you think about like, uh, um, you know, you, you get uh, um, Naomi Wildman, but her mom, Samantha, um, she goes for a long time with not being on the show at all. She had a, a run where she was sort of a minor character, and then she's just sort of gone, and you have Naomi, but no yeah. mother, evidently. Um, and so you have Neelix as sort of the, you know, the fill-in, sort of, he'll, he'll go in and tuck her in or whatever, but the mom just sort of seems to disappear, which is totally strange. So I think maybe the only way I could like try and take take a stab at explaining that um, I know for Deep Space Nine I, I had a couple of conversations with uh, Aaron Eisenberg who played Nog before he passed. Um, yeah. That was a really, really was uh, he, he was a great guy. But um, he was telling me about how like they had uh, for Deep Space Nine, you know, e- each episode always had a couple longtime recurring characters, but. Generally speaking, the they sort of had a roster of, of, of the recurring characters that had to sort of be around in case they were called and they kind of got paid anyway, like less if they weren't appearing, obviously. But they did. They, they were they were kind of like like sort of a, a, a subsection of, of the main cast, essentially. So I think probably with Voyager as a way to cut costs, they probably didn't want to have that kind of like standby bench that needed to. You know, it would cut down on costs, not having the, the, the same people around all the time. But um, as, as we kind of uh, head into the, the, the final part of uh, the, the podcast, I wanted to ask about a subject uh, that uh, we actually did our first, uh, our other Voyager uh, episode about. And that was uh, the episode Threshold, the iconic uh, Voyager episode that is... Very, very polarizing. I, I, I personally find it a lot of fun. The salamander babies that got left behind. I was wondering what your thoughts on that episode were. Um, well, actually, in uh, one of the essays in the uh, the book is uh, totally talking about it. It's the last one. Um, uh, Murray Leader writes a, an essay, and one of the the big criticisms he has about Voyager, he actually tears apart Threshold. So um, it, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of funny, um, but he, he does raise some really good points in there. Um, yeah, um, it's, uh, like, it has a lot of, like, problems if you're just thinking about, like, writing this episode. Um, because one, like, what, what they're saying about, like, genetics and transforming really wouldn't work. Um, the idea of the, the figures in Warp 10 is, is hugely problematic, um, scientifically. Um, and so, uh, there are a lot of, a lot of real issues in there, um, I think that uh, uh, Robert Duncan McNeil, though, actually does a pretty good job of transforming into like Lizard Man. Um, I, I do enjoy his yeah. scenes when he's in the um, when he's in the, the uh, sick bay, and like he he pulls out his tongue and he does a lot of you know really interesting things. So you you get a, a script that might seem really weird, and I think he does actually a pretty good job of of his transformation because we get to see a lot of it on film. It's not like we come back from like a commercial break and he's transformed. He's actually pulling the skin off and ripping his tongue out and doing a lot of stuff actually on camera, which I, I, I found sort of enjoyable. So, you know, props to him for, for doing that. Yeah, he really does sell it. I mean, it's a very, 
if you were to like you know make a list of the the bottom 10 star treks ever i mean it would it would probably be there and yet i think it's probably the most fun of those like you know i, I don't find these are the voyages the enterprise finale very fun uh threshold i always go back to it's it's kind of ruined the dc comics character swamp thing for me because they kind of look alike but <laughs> it's uh yeah, they uh, it, it it's 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 a lot of fun. I I I am a th- I, I'm glad Threshold exists. I'll say that. I'm not going to say I'm a Threshold defend. I'll defend its existence because um, it allowed them to go somewhere where they had boldly uh, really never gone before, and maybe that was a mess. Warp Ten was certainly a mess, but um, I definitely you know if they'd made the Tom Paris Swamp thing a recurring character more, uh, maybe that would have been fun. I don't know. Yeah, um, well, I think that, um, you know, even uh, Brandon Braga, who, who wrote the episode, I mean, he said it was a great idea, and then we started, like, trying to film it, and it just sort of fell apart. I mean, I, I think he even realizes there were some issues with the whole the whole setup once he actually got into it. Because you have a kind of a cool idea, and sometimes those ideas just don't transform well. So I, th- I think that's probably a lot what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, so for the real final question this time... Um, I know you you've spent years uh I really uh deep into this project. Uh it's been it was a lot of fun to contribute just my chapter that's one of one of many. Um I wanted to uh ask you sort of your thoughts on uh the project and how it influenced your uh how it changed your perspective of uh on Star Trek Voyager as a whole. Um yeah, so uh, you know, I, I, like I said at the beginning, I've always been a Voyager fan. I, I really did like it. And so um when I was looking at um Star Trek, is, you know, uh a lot of the scholarship on Star Trek, there was never uh, an entire uh this book on essays about Voyager. They have it about, um, you know, uh, next generation. There's been some essays written about Voyager in different, uh, magazines and like a chapter in a book here or there. Um, but nothing kind of a full length, uh, you know, sort of a study of, of Voyager. And so I put the call out and, um, there's a, a professor uh, at the university of Portsmouth in England, Lincoln Garrity, and he's written a lot on Star Trek and American pop culture. And uh, he, I had had a chapter put in one of his books called Channeling the Future. Um, I wrote about Firefly in that. And um, he, uh, so I, I knew him. And so when I had this idea, I sent uh, the call for papers out to him. And he was going to distribute it through the sort of, uh, you know, um, listservs and stuff in England. And I also contacted the European Popular Culture Association and sent it out because I wanted a wide perspective on Voyager. I didn't want, just want America. Um, I wanted international to see what other people thought about the way Voyager was portrayed to give it sort of an international feel um, and to sort of keep with the idea of sort of this you know, social utopian nature of uh, of uh, Roddenberry and the Star Trek franchise. And um, so I got a lot of... Uh, Call, you know, I got a lot of uh, proposals from all around the world, and I was able to winnow it down to uh, just 15 chapters, um, which is probably about half, I guess, of the proposals I received. Um, and then, um, you know, it was really interesting to see because I, when I put the call out, I tried to get um, different people from different disciplines to also make it interdisciplinary. So we have people looking at um, uh, Star Trek through like the lens of disability studies. Or uh, you know feminism, uh, you know uh, religion, 
um, literary studies, I mean, all kinds of different types of uh, um, you know all, all kinds of different types of, of uh, chapters about Voyager, and uh, it was a great collection coming together. Um, you know, all, all the authors were great to work with. Um, if I had a question or I needed a revision or something, and I sent off an email, um, usually within the next day or two, I'd get responses back from people, and we'd set up plans. But it's been, gosh, uh, I started this project in 2017 when I made the pitch to McFarland Press about um, you know, actually publishing this. And then I had to get the call out. And then, you know, once I accepted everyone, giving them time to write the chapters and then revision, um, then we had to send it out to, uh, you know, um, for peer review, which took a while. And then getting everything sort of cleaned up for the, um, the publisher. Um, so yeah, it's just been, it's been a labor of love and, and I, I really did enjoy working with all the authors. They've been really cool. Um, I think after doing this, um, you know, I, I think I appreciate, uh, you know, Voyager a lot more. I think that the stuff they were uh, doing or attempting to do, uh, was, you know, uh, you know, really positive, um, for, you know, um, our culture, um, and they were trying to show like women in positions of power that weren't just, you know, I mean, we talked about seven of nine, but, um, you know, having a, a female captain, um, you know, having a chief engineer, which uh, engineers had always been traditionally male, having Valana take that role, um, you know, all, all these kinds of things they were doing, um, you know, putting, uh, uh, you know, having a character who's, uh, a Native American, um, having, uh, you know, um, uh, Tim Ross play Tuvok. Um, these things kind of took a lot of Star Trek canon and kind of turned it on its head a little bit. So you're seeing a truly, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, multicultural cast. And uh, sometimes, you know, the, the sometimes the episodes didn't play out as well as perhaps they, they could have. Uh, but I think overall what they were actually trying to do was, was a really good thing. And I think it really did reflect a lot of the changing dynamics and, and demographics of America at the time. And I, and I think that, you know, looking back, even though there are some, some flaws, I'm not going to deny that the series didn't have its, some of its issues. Um, but it did reflect the 90s because a lot of the people doing cultural criticism of the 90s, um, they're really torn about what the 90s meant to America. Um, they haven't really defined it well. And so I think that Voyager reflects a lot of that, too. So when I go back and, and watch episodes now, um, you know, I, I kind of do it with a fondness. I don't like, oh no, not Voyager again or something. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about the, uh, about seeing these, these, um, episodes. And then also, you know, looking at those episodes in terms of the way, uh, the writers in the book have actually viewed those episodes. So for me, it's been really rewarding as an editor. Yeah, I, I think as as I wrote my chapter about the Doctor, I I've always had the perspective that the Voyager. I think I think if you took the top fifteen or twenty episodes of Voyager and stacked them up against the Next Generation, for example, I think Voyager could 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 probably eke eke that one out. I think that Voyager has uh, a lot of you know you gotta you gotta endure a lot of stinkers to get to the. Um, uh, some of the episodes that are just uh, absolutely phenomenal and are, are real pure jerkers. And I love the way that they they use the entire cast to uh, bring out a lot of these dramatic moments like Harry Kim in Timeless or, uh, you know, so many others, as opposed to The Next Generation, which was really heavily, uh, you know, more more Picard, Data and Riker than uh, than the like Worf, Worf doesn't get it. Oh, uh, I guess with his son. But um 
I, I think Voyager and people people tend to dismiss Voyager a lot. And I think that um, you shouldn't necessarily the metaphor, of the seeing the forest for the trees, probably butchering that. But uh, people people get what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, yeah, no, Voyager has some great episodes. Um, you know, if, if you think about like uh, Jutrell is, is a really good episode. Um, Counterpoint's amazing. Um, they, they've got some really good yep. episodes in there. Um, you can't just like, you know, just just say that, oh, because they had Threshold, you can't judge the series by its its worst, you know? Um, there, there were a lot of really good episodes yeah. in there. Um, yeah, um, you know, they had some really interesting things, too. Um, Living Witness, I thought, was really good, um, you know, with, with the, the Doctor, who was, like, 700 years later, is, is you know, uh, witness to this, um, like, civil war between these, these two cultures. Um, but, yeah, they, they've got some really interesting, thought-provoking episodes that people have a tendency to overlook because they'll, they'll bring up like one bad episode or something, you know, something like that. But there are some really nice uh, episodes in, in the Voyager run that you just can't say, you know, I mean, two Vix is an amazing episode. Um, you just can't say like, Oh, because they had a couple of bad ones that the series is not worthy of watching. Right. And I, I'm like filled with all of these, like really, great jumping off point it, it shows you know the voyager is a show that you know it part of its greatness is the fact that uh we we can talk an hour about it and there's just so many other things that i'd uh, want to touch on but uh unfortunately we're we're kind of at the the end of the episode uh rob do you want to tell us um the release date of the book and uh where we can find it well um you can uh, you can buy it through mcfarland um it's on amazon um, I'm not quite sure on the exact release date. It was supposed to be out in mid-April, but with all the coronavirus halting things, right. it's going to yeah. be delayed or not. So I wish I could give you an exact date. But it, yeah, if you look up, um, you know, uh, exploring Star Trek Voyager uh, critical essays on Amazon, it'll pop up there. And we're still hoping for an April release, but at this point. Um, I'm sort of giving everyone sort of a broad leeway because of all the closures and, and cutbacks and, and isolating. Um, so yeah, I'm not quite right. sure at this point. Well, I'll link, I'll link to the page, uh, when the episode goes out so people can, uh, see it whenever they, uh, stumble upon our, uh, trip, trip through, uh, the Delta Quadrant. So, uh, Rob, uh, it's been, it's been so great to talk to you. Um, you want to tell us you're, uh, you're on Twitter, right? Uh, yeah, it's just at Rob Lively, um, and, and Lively has a, a, a three where the E should be, um, and uh, yeah, it's just, um, you know, uh, I don't really do a whole lot of social media, um, just because uh-huh. I've got a lot of other projects going on, so I mean, I, I check Twitter quite a bit, actually, it's my one social media outlet, but um, yeah, no, it's um, it's been fun, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We'll uh, link to that. And uh, to everybody listening, uh, I hope you've enjoyed uh, our trip through the Delta Quadrant and uh, we'll see you next time.